0: There was a time when those calling Russia a mafia state and Putin a terrorist were in the minority and who were even thought of as extreme voices. My guest today was one of those people who, along with a handful of other writers and journalists like Edward Lucas and David Satter, called Putin out early while his oppressive regime was just starting to flex its muscles. Luke Harding has observed Russia's descent into tyrannical absolutism and terrorism over many years and charted the malign influence of that country abroad as exercised in wars, energy politics, and active measures. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe if you like our guest speakers, as it helps other people to discover the content we create, as well as the many fantastic voices on the channel. Luke Harding is a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He was based in Russia for The Guardian from 2007 until, returning from a stay in the UK on February 5, uh, 2011, he was refused re-entry to Russia and deported the same day. His expulsion was likely linked with his articles critical to Russia. His 2011 book, Mafia State, discusses his experiences in Russia and the political system under Vladimir Putin, which he clearly describes as a mafia state. Today, we're going to be discussing his latest gripping book, Invasion, which covers the war in Ukraine. Luke, welcome so much to the channel.
1: Uh, Hi, Jonathan. Good to be with you.
0: Well, let's dive straight into the questions, uh, because I've got a bunch of questions to ask you. And you've been doing some incredible reportage on the conflict, and you've now captured some of that analysis and impressions in your latest book. Um, Can you tell me, really, what what sort of drove you to write that book now, even though the outcome of the conflict is not yet known?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, as you were saying in the intro, I I mean, I've I've been following Russia for a long time now, about 15 years, um, and... It, it it wasn't really that i you know i was obsessed with the country it's it's merely that i think um what i kind of concluded from my four years there before i was um uh, thrown out was, was that this was not just a kind of regime that was domestically oppressive i mean we we've seen lots of evidence of that or of, of protesters being you know beaten up and and put into vans in in the center of moscow and in other cities we've seen uh the opposition the sort of Outside the system, the movement of Alexei Navalny rolled up. Navalny himself poisoned, and then jailed. Um, and, and we've seen a sort of return to Soviet methods of control and intimidation. I mean, I mean, I mean that much was clear. But what I always sort of strongly believed um, was that Russia was also internationally dangerous, um, and there was plenty of evidence of that, including when i was there i mean i covered the war in in georgia which everyone's forgotten about in the august of 2008 when russian tanks were rolling towards the georgian capital tbilisi and and essentially it was a a kind of attempt to stop ukraine from from joining nato and integrating with the european union and the west and it was just a rather brutal um lesson in in uh sort of neighborhood realpolitik from vladimir putin um and so I mean, I've, be, I've been covering Ukraine um, since that period. Um, I was in Ukraine in, in 2014 when Putin annexed Crimea um, and kick-started essentially a, a sort of artificial, I mean, artificially created military conflict in the east of the country. I was in Donetsk and Luhansk um, and um, uh, was was basically kind of meddling uh, violently in Ukraine's kind of internal affairs. and And so, when um, in the autumn of last year, the autumn of 2021, Putin sent tanks and armored vehicles to the to, to Ukraine's borders, to Belarus, over, over the bridge he'd constructed in, into occupied Crimea. I, I did not read this as a bluff. I'm, I mean, with Putin, basically, if you have a bad option and a worse option, always pick, pick the worst option. Um, and a lot of people were saying, no, it's not gonna happen. There was skepticism in Kiev, um, including from from the government of Vladimir Zelensky, which didn't believe it or didn't really want to believe it. Um, and meanwhile, we had absolutely grim um, intelligence assessments and warnings from Washington and from London saying, "No, this is this is for real." Um, and I think you know, I decided to write the book when on February the twenty fourth, when I was in Kiev. Um, and the first bombs fell and it was it was clear to me that this was a turning point in history. I mean, it was the first major, kind of the biggest European war for 80 years since 1945. Um, and I just thought this is an apocalypse moment and it was important to write about it, uh, to interpret it, to explain the backstory and tell tell the human story as well of those people who were caught up in this conflict.
0: And it's extraordinary, isn't it, how through the conflict we have started to look back and reinterpret the past. So you mentioned Georgia, and that's a sort of Ukraine conflict in minima, you know in miniature, isn't it? with the um, uh, you know with the staged uh, provocations, um, the fact that Russia already occupied a part of Georgian territory and behind the scenes engineered that crisis. but in that instance, they managed to make it look like um, Georgia. Was to blame, and they were much better at manipulating public opinion abroad, much better at manipulating political relationships through energy policy and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean that's right, and and also, I mean, at, at that particular moment, Dmitry Medvedev was Russia's president, and and Putin was prime minister. I mean, I mean, the joke in Moscow at the time was that um that there was a Medvedev camp in the Kremlin, which was supposedly was more liberal than the, the hawkish sort of Putin. Guys, but it was not clear whether, whether Medvedev was in the Medvedev camp. Uh, so, and of course, it was Medvedev um, who articulated this, this doctrine or, or pseudo doctrine, you might call it, that Russia had priv- privileged interests, was his phrase, in, in the former Soviet backyard. In, in other words, they could call the shots. And, and uh, I, I mean, it was clear that the, 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 the Russian political elite never really, I mean, you know, Putin's been very clear that he regards the collapse of the Soviet Union as a geopolitical catastrophe, the biggest of the 20th century, but never really accepted the the kind of key idea that these states were independent, that had, you know, a sovereign identity can make their own foreign and political choices, whether that's joining NATO or not joining NATO or, or, or whatever. Essentially, he, you know that they felt that Moscow should still control th- these um, satellites, and when when there was someone like um, uh, Viktor Yanukovych in power, that essentially the sort of pro-Kremlin uh, ruler of of Ukraine elected uh, in 2010, then that was okay. That was okay because because essentially he would not uh, do anything antithetical to Moscow's interests. And of course, the reason this whole crisis started eight years ago was because. Yanukovych tore up an association agreement with the European Union, which would have put put Ukraine on a pro-Western course and accepted a financial bailout from, from Russia. In other words, a large bribe. And there were street protests in similarly cold weather that, 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 that we have at the moment. This, this week across, across Europe, it's been snowing in Kiev, it's snowing where I am. Uh, and people sort of spent weeks protesting in the Maidan in, in the main central square of Kiev in sub-zero temperatures. Um, and for a long time, these demonstrations were peaceful. And, and then Yanukovych, I think acting under pressure from Russia decided to get nasty. Uh, people started being beaten up, um, being taken away, disappearing, turning up dead. Uh, and then of course this culminated with his, his um, security forces shooting dead about a hundred unarmed protesters in the center of Kiev, and, and him fleeing to Russia. Uh, an episode which, which Putin characterizes as, as an American coup and of course, it was nothing of the t- of, of of the kind. But ultimately, it was about the future of Ukraine and what you might characterize as an anti-colonial movement. And and that anti-colonial movement is still going on now. That is why Ukraine is fighting. That is why Ukrainians are volunteering to 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 um, you know, to, to shoot Russian soldiers and sometimes to die in the process. I mean, an awful lot of people have been killed. Um, and. This this is this is a this is a fight against Russian chauvinism. And I think it's also a fight that Ukraine will ultimately win.
0: And there's so many uh, questions that spring out of that. I think you've you've almost certainly answered the one I was going to lead to next, which, of course, was whether you were expecting the war to happen, because there were many commentators on the Russian side, usually people who are Extraordinarily in, in, insightful into what's happening in Russia, and I think, in particular, uh, of the satirist Viktor Shenderovich and others. You know, they were saying, "No, this is a bluff. This is an extreme diplomatic move." I think there are many, even internally within Russia, who misinterpreted the signs. Um, uh, which, but yeah, if you're if if you've lived in Russia or been in Russia for a considerable period of time, like you have, I think you develop a certain level of cynicism. Which, yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, yes, and also, of course, the Kremlin denied it. I mean, let's not forget until the invasion happened, they said this was all hysteria, um, and uh, just uh, just Western media, um, nonsense, and and uh, again, you know, wrong by America, wrong by the UK, etc. And it turned out it was all completely true what, what 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 was um, being said. And I still think one of the things I try and explore in in invasion, um, in in chapter two is. Is what you might call late Putin the fact that this dictator um, has become more and more r- lost in a, in a sort of historical fantasy world where, where you know, when he when he goes to bed at night, he dreams about Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Stalin. It's a sort of mashup of you know imperial and and, and Soviet and Tsarist history, and um, he's been brooding on his uh, on his role, on his legacy. Um, and you know, he published this extraordinary essay basically arguing that you, you, Ukrainians and Russians were one people and that Ukraine was never a thing, that it was uh, never a state, that the land that Ukraine occupies is historical Russia. Um, and the, the, the villain of the piece, amazingly, this essay was, was Lenin, um, who, who gave autonomy to the Ukrainian Socialist um, Republic in the 1920s, um, and, you know, plus he, he takes a swipe at the West that he blames the Poles, the Mongols, the Americans, etc. Um, and, you know, Putin has decided that he is the person who is going to redeem this land and go down in history as the man who who created another Russian empire, mm-hmm. made Russia great again, to, to coin a phrase. Um, uh, that was the ambition. Um, and it, it's crazy. It's metaphysical, metaphysical. It's got a kind of religious component. It's all about restoring Russian orthodoxy as well in Ukraine. Uh, and actually, you know, bluntly speaking, the operation has been a disaster. I mean, it, it really hasn't gone the way he anticipated. He expected to be able to seize Kiev in a matter of days and, and to subdue the whole country uh, by summer. That that seems to be in the plan and to install a, a, a kind of pro-Russian puppet administration, uh, which would have been the kind of pro-peace party. So the plan was all there and of course, you know, he completely underestimated Ukrainians. I mean, he thought they were just kind of rural Russians, led by a corrupt pro-Western elite that was very, very thin. And in fact, he he's ended up fighting a country of 40 million plus people. So the Ukrainian army, but also the population who don't want the Russians to be there in areas that have been occupied. And I think he's now, he now has a kind of he's now in a mess and he has to sort of figure out what he does, whether he, he tries to conquer the whole of the Donbass, which seems to be the current plan or whether at some stage he, he pauses and, and tries to negotiate a peace. But, but the, the point is the Ukrainians will not stop. They, they will keep going. Uh, uh, President Zelensky has made it very clear that they intend to, to, to de-occupy everything. So including Donetsk and Luhansk, including Crimea um, and, we'll have to see what next year, year brings. But I, I think my, my feeling is that, that momentum is still very much with Ukraine and I can see more Ukrainian gains, uh, particularly in the South.
0: And I think Ukrainians, uh, something you said there, they understand um, the region, they understand Russia probably far better than most in the West do. Uh, the Baltics also understand it. If you speak to anyone from the Baltics, you know they'll be able to talk about their grandparents uh, especially if they're part of the intelligentsia or um, any kind of political class, they will have lost multiple relatives to the kind of um, filtration, deportation, torture and murder that we're now seeing in Ukraine. So that sort of historical, even familial knowledge of how Russians behave um, at scale and the brutality of it is fresh. Whereas there seems to be a constant... Um, approach in the West to try and normalize Russia, to try and see Russia's behavior through almost a Western lens and to soften in some ways the uh, brutality of it. And even when you have sort of war crimes, I think a lot of reports don't dig down into what is actually driving it. And it is extremely sinister forces um, that, that drive, uh, I think a lot of the executions and disappearances which we see. Especially of intellectuals, artists, musicians—a form of sort of cultural genocide, in fact.
1: Yeah, and, and no, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, there, there's sort of several several things going going on here. One, I think, is a serial failure by Western countries, um, excluding, as you say, the 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 the, the poles and perhaps the, the Baltic states, who, who understood all along, but to 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 sort of re- basically not really understand how how the, how the kind of KGB. Uh, Russian, you know, KGB sort of trained Russian uh, government thinks that uh, they think that they're basically involved in a war with the West. That that yes, they're fighting in Ukraine, but the essentially the enemy is America and NATO and its allies. And of course, that's not true, but but that's how they perceive it. Almost as if a, it's almost a kind of end of days fight. And and the problem is until recently, until February the twenty fourth, I think. Putin would do egregious things, whether it's murdering dissidents like Alexander Litvinenko, invading Georgia, annexing Crimea, um, trying to poison Sergei Skripal in Salisbury, um, and the reaction was always a, a little bit feeble and and conventional, and so he would sort of keep going, and I, I think he really thought that that with Ukraine there would be there would be words of outrage and. but but actually the the West would, you know, reluctantly kind of accept the situation and accept Ukraine's takeover by Russian troops. And and of course, what we've seen actually has been a a really quite formidable and so far robust anti-Kremlin coalition led by the Biden administration, which has provided more military aid to Ukraine than anyone else, 20 times more than the next country, which is the UK, but but also a a, a sort of a, a popular upsurge of support for Ukraine from ordinary people who've housed Ukrainian refugees, who've driven minivans uh, full of warm clothes and, and aid to, to Ukraine, who have, you know, be, been engaged with the subject, and also what's been interesting is been it's been cross-party. I'm, I mean, with the exception of a few people in the in the Republican Party in the States, pretty much everybody, even the Italian government, w- which is run by the far right, has has been supporting the Ukrainian cause. So I think sort of Putin miscalculated on the on the cultural response, and just to go to your other point, you're right. I'm, I mean, I, I've talked to Anne Applebaum, the, the historian, about this, and and there are clear chilling parallels between what the NKVD did, the secret police, in in um uh, in East, Eastern and Central Europe, in in the '40s, you know, during the war, and subsequently, and, and what's happening now. And what's happening now really is an attempt to to. De-Ukrainize Ukraine to get rid of its language, its culture, its identity, its cultural symbols. Whether it's blowing up statues of Taras Shevchenko, Ukraine's national poet, which I've seen, or putting a bullet through Shevchenko's head, or, or or whether it's abducting Ukrainian kids uh, and re-educating them, or introducing the Russian curriculum um, and you know burning Ukrainian books. I, I mean. The 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 project when you take a step back from it is 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 breathtaking and basically genocidal. I mean, this is Zelensky's allegation, and hard to disagree with that when you see what's been happening. And and I think in Putin's head there's an idea that either you can make Ukrainians into good Russians, and if you can't make them to good Russians, you have to kill them. But that that, that those are basically the options. So that those who can be cajoled, made to collaborate, made to kind of accept the new reality. Uh, you know, they, they, they can live, but the, the, those who have a kind of pronounced pro-Ukrainian position or were members of the police or the old, author- you know, the old authorities, they have to be executed. And th- that's what we've seen um, on, on a big scale in, in the Kiev region, in occupied uh, Kherson, uh, Oblast, uh, and in Kharkiv in the northeast. Every zone of Russian occupation I go to, I end
0: up watching bodies being pulled out of the earth. And and Belarus provides quite an interesting template, doesn't it? Because you talked about language being a real target of uh, this approach. Now, the Belarus language over the last 30 years has seen a significant decline. uh, And it's become, from from being sort of relatively widespread, you can really only now find it in sort of, you know, uh, provincial setting in villages, and it tends to be the old generation who speak it. And I heard an interesting perspective from some of the Ukrainians that that I'm talking to is that. The erosion of the Belarus language is one of the reasons why Russian propaganda has proved to be quite effective uh, in helping to suppress the Belarus independence movement. Um, And another point was that much of the artistic and intellectual elites has either been imprisoned or had to flee the country. So that process of Russification um, triumphed in Belarus and the Ukrainians. Would have seen that happening. Um, would have had a lot of uh, reports from, you know, friends, even relatives um, through that process. So there's a clear warning there from recent history.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And also, what's interesting um, is just um, how many Ukrainians are are dumping Russian, dumping the Russian language, and switching to Ukrainian. Now, now everybody is is bilingual in Ukraine. Both languages are are spoken and understood. And despite what sort of Russian propaganda says, it's perfectly okay to speak Russian pretty much everywhere. I mean, I speak Russian all the time uh, in Kiev and elsewhere. And uh, you know, obviously, cities like Kharkiv and Kherson and and Rick President Zelensky's hometown. I mean, he, he's a native Russian speaker. They're, they're all Russophone. But but there's a people are making a kind of civic choice. They're basically rejecting the, the the Putinite idea that if you speak Russian, therefore you are you you know you should be in the Russian control you should be a Russian citizen um, uh, and that they you know have their own Ukrainian identity which is Ukrainian it's 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 European it's westward looking um, and, and the country has changed a great deal since 2014 I mean that that this process of Ukrainization um, has been going on and of course Ukrainians point out that that for centuries their language was suppressed I mean it's not not just it's not just in areas occupied newly by Russian troops where Ukraine is being Wiped out um, and removed from from libraries and from from school curricula. But but in the nineteenth century, it was banned for, for, for much of it under a series of imperial edicts. You couldn't put on a play in Ukrainian. You couldn't you, you couldn't publish in Ukrainian. Um, and and the, these these uh, this ban was only really revoked in nineteen hundred and five. And then of course there was another wave of of, of russification, Sovietization under Stalin. I mean, there was a brief sort of flourishing in the 1920s under Lenin, but then subsequently, the Ukrainian language was was forbidden again, um, and that that there the, the was the the great famine of 1932 and 1933 in which nearly four million people died, and and so Ukrainians, understandably, mistrust Moscow, mistrust the state. Uh, they're a very um, interestingly kind of network society, a horizontal society, as I write an invasion, and I think. I think kind of, you know, slowly, slowly and surely Russian will 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 stop being spoken in Ukraine. And and the thing is, these are individual choices. There's, there's no one saying you cannot speak Russian. I mean, people do speak Russian. You can you hear Russian on the streets of Kiev, you can fall in love in Russian, you can order order in Russian, etc. But I think there is a move now to 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 the Ukrainian language, which is becoming unstoppable.
0: And it's an interesting point, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russians were able to pass off the historic crimes for a period of time, and they were able to put a label on it, which is the Soviet Union. And that wasn't us. We were also dominated. And to an extent, they were given a free pass. I remember being there in the 90s, and the country was in a, in a parlour state. They'd lost empire, and there was a huge nostalgia for this sense of lost prestige. Um, But nonetheless, Russia did not have the taint of the Soviet Union's crimes. What Putin seems to have done is by turning the clock back um, to a mishmash of Soviet and Tsarist nostalgia, and through this war, he has put a stain on Russian culture, Russian history, um, Russian language, and is now forcing a reinterpretation, uh, not just of recent history, but longer term history through a the decolonization lens, you know, Russian studies is in turmoil, the journalistic practice of, you know, where people are based and how they view events, all of these are now being looked through quite a different lens than they would have been, say, 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the cultural thing is interesting. I mean, there were billboards in Kazan uh, featuring Pushkin uh, saying, you know, saying that Kazon is a Russian city. I mean, that Pushkin's been absolutely instrumentalized. I, I, in all this, and and Tolstoy, and so on, and, and meanwhile, Russian soldiers have been destroying any kind of Ukrainian monuments, especially to to, um, <clears throat> to to what happened in 2014. That's all been er, 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 erased, uh, and they've bizarrely they've been putting up statues of Lenin again. I mean, Lenin has made a comeback in places like Genichesk, which is now the the kind of uh, new operating headquarters for, for Russian administration in the It's a small sleepy little seaside town um, uh, uh, overlooking Crimea that I visited in January, but you know, just before the war started or the the, the large scale war started. So Lenin is back and and that makes no sense because Putin was blaming Lenin for creating Ukraine and yet there he is as as being celebrated as a symbol of of Soviet culture. And I think it just speaks to the ideological vacancy at the heart of this project. It's not entirely clear why Putin has gone to war. I mean, originally he said it was a special operation to demilitarize and um, denazify Ukraine. Which again is preposterous, given the fact that Ukraine is run by a Jewish president, you know, has a Jewish prime minister, and and Zelensky's relatives, many of them perished in the Holocaust, and his father fought the Nazis in the Red Army, his grandfather. So so, it's all a bit of a nonsense. And and then lately they've been talking about it's a war against Satanism and Western decadence. Um, so and and you know, perhaps next year we'll get another explanation for for why Russia is fighting and it. it I mean, the, the significance of this is that, you know, Russian troops don't quite know why they're there, actually. In, in the early days, they ran around asking, where are the Nazis? Um, and, uh, you know, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian soldiers, conversely, know precisely why they're there, to, to defend their country, to defend their families, their homes, their language, their way of life, and their right to choose, and to be free, actually, at the most basic level. Um, so so the, this kind of attempt to sort of Uh, play on on a yearning for kind of cultural nostalgia you know but yearning for the soviet Union. i mean it works on a few older people and it was a trick that was played in you know it was a a sort of trick that was played in 2014 with some success in in the east of the country but now it no longer works there's not a constituency for that anymore unfortunately apart from a few old people
0: and again you know we try to look at putin and there's endless, you know, articles and interviews that try to rationalize his decision making process that try to, you know, understand whether he's taken a nationalist turn or whether he believes these ridiculous sort of uh, pseudo uh, historical articles that he's been penning over the last couple of years. But actually, if we look at his actions through the concept of active measures, which is that you you actually have no philosophy, you have no point of view, what you do is whatever makes your enemy weaker then somehow the sort of mishmash of, of uh, ideologies that he's pulled together. That perhaps makes more sense if you look at him as as a spy, as an operative of the prime purpose being to make Russia stronger, but to make her enemies weaker at the same time.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the unifying idea, idea here is the, the idea of Russia as a as a, as a great power uh, with, with great power privileges and, and a, a, a kind of imperial Russia, essentially. I mean, that this is... Well, what's happening in Ukraine is is a is a, is a classic imperial takeover uh, attempt to to crush a rebellious former colony and to 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 reabsorb it in into the great imperium. I mean that 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 that's the project. Whatever ideological facade it's it, it's it's given, and it's quite interesting how he the, the, his ideas are essentially nineteenth century ideas or or kind of chauvinistic ideas, um, and. I I mean, I kind of explore this in 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 my book. I think that that, that Ukraine is necessary for Russia to be an empire. You know, without Ukraine, it's not really an empire, actually. But I think ultimately that the the threat that Ukraine poses is one of example because there are millions of Russian speakers in Ukraine now. If Ukraine can integrate with the West, if it can become a successful, uh, prosperous democracy, a, a member of NATO, let's say, a member of the European Union, but basically part 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 of kind of european democratic space then why can't russia you you know because russia you know russia similarly is full of millions of russian speakers uh and of course that's not what putin wants because putin what putin has done with russia is to take it from you know when he inherited russia it was basically i don't know if you agree but it was basically a sort of semi-democracy i mean it wasn't fully democratic but it had some democratic elements to it I mean, and at least as a minimum, Boris Yeltsin could be criticised and mocked on Russian TV. And what 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 we've seen under Putin is that the state's grown darker and darker. When I was there, I would describe it as authoritarian. Now I would say it's totalitarian. I think it's it, it's pretty mm-hmm. close to sort of full-blown totalitarian dictatorship, where any form of dissent is a crime, where uh, opponents of the regime are locked up on on spurious charges and given given extraordinarily long punitive jail sentences where, where critics are routinely murdered, where businessmen mysteriously fall out of windows, uh, and and where anyone can come plunge into the mincer, um, it's it's a place of arbitrary, unchecked power, and, and where actually a lot of young Russians who don't fancy fighting and dying in the war have voted with their feet and have fled to the Baltics, to Armenia, to, to Georgia, um, and so it's become a gloomy and and chilling place um where the state propaganda gets louder and louder and louder, uh, where and um, where also I think the regime is looking more and more fragile.
0: I'd certainly agree. I mean, it, in the nineties, there was the inklings of institutions starting to emerge, or um, you know, a culture of discussion. Um, but with obviously a long, long way to go. But I think when I was talking to Yuri Felschinsky, he pointed out that there has not been a democratic transition of power, a fully peaceful uh, transition of power via a transparent election, uh, even the transition from from Yeltsin to um Putin in some ways was stage managed to a significant degree. So I think yeah, talking about democracy in Russia, it's never had a fully fledged transition of power under a democratic system. But as you say, Putin has, there were some institutions and there was culture of free expression starting to emerge. Putin has over the last 20 years, eroded every single uh, institution or free behavior and I believe managed to taint everything that existed. You know, the church is tainted by the secret services. It's clearly run at the higher echelons by uh, former KGB agents. Um, Culture is driven by nepotism or at least those that get onto TV. Um, So I see Putin as both eroding institutions but also institutionalizing a kind of nepotism, which means that if you have any kind of dissent whatsoever you will not be considered you know part of uh, whether it be cultural political or any kind of social elite and possibly even you'll be excluded from being able to you know become rich successful etc
1: yeah I, I mean i think there's sort of two things going on uh, two two projects uh, in in contemporary russia one w- what one is the ultra nationalistic project which has kind of led to this 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 terrible war but the, uh, the other, which I sort of documented in in, in, in you know in previous books of mine, um, shadow state was was the one before invasion, um, and mafia state as well is, is corruption. You know, I spent a long time investigating the corruption of Putin and his circle, and and what we can say, and I've seen the documents in very many cases, is that they've accumulated billions of dollars, not through through talent, but but just because you know power, power is money. Um, and that you, Putin arguably is, is the richest guy in the world. I mean, he, he perhaps formally not, I mean, this, is, this money is not formally his, but it's held by a series of proxies and by oligarchs, some of whom have been recently sanctioned, some of whom who, who haven't and who control Russia's abundant natural resources, whether it's oil, gas or or, or, or whatever. And, and, you know, he can instrumentalize this wealth. I mean, he can use it for sort of personal pleasure, whether it's a yacht or that ludicrous overblown palace he had built in Sochi and denied it was his, although everyone knew it was his. And he can use it for political projects, for subversion, for sabotage, for throwing elections, for, for funding far-right parties in Europe and, and elsewhere, for, um, for you know, backing the left. I mean, that's the other traditional sort of vector in Soviet times, the sort of far left. But, but mostly these days, the focus is on the sort of Euroskeptic, xenophobic, uh, you know, conservative or ultra-conservative right, including in America, um, and and so so that the, the, the money can be used for, for 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 all sorts of things. But basically, Russia is fantastically corrupt. And this was the other category error made by Western politicians in 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 the, over the last couple of decades was to treat Putin like a politician. It would have been better to treat him like a gangster, uh, and and think the guy you're dealing with is a gangster who sometimes murders people. Uh, sometimes doesn't, but who essentially is only interested in a deal. He's interested in dealing. And if he can't deal, if he can't get, any, get what he wants, then he believes it's a conspiracy. Uh, so he's, he's not a Democrat. He'll never be a Democrat. Uh, and it was actually Garry Kasparov, you know, I've talked to him about this and he, he, he made this point um, that if you want to um, understand Putin, forget about reading. You know, scholarly research. Just go to a bookshelf and pick up a copy of Mario
0: Puzo's *The
1: Godfather*,
0: and it's all there. I heard you speaking to Misha Glenny a couple of years ago about this topic, and around the same time, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, um, and it was actually The Guardian building alone. He had a big event in 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 um, you know in in that lecture theatre you've got at The Guardian, and I remember the audience when he said this. Like, you know, he was asked, "What should you do with Putin?" I think it was around 2000 and. Uh, it must have been two thousand and eight, so it's quite a few years ago, or maybe no, he wasn't let out then, was he? No, it would have been
1: uh, yeah, he, he, five he, or he six got, years he got ago. Two thousand twelve, I think. He got Two thousand
0: twelve. So it would have been yeah. about two thousand sixteen, probably. But he was asked that question: "How do you deal with Putin?" He just said, "Don't, you know, don't make deals. Don't deal with him. Don't treat him like a statesman. Um, you have to see him as something quite different." Um, I think this is the other mistake that is continuously made, even now is to imagine that somehow there is a well of opposition within Russian society, that somehow from whether it be opposition sources or even within the Duma or the media, there is somehow this uh, groundswell uh, of alternative government, proto-liberal government in waiting. Um, But my understanding is that what, they've, what he's managed to build up is is a facade of a democratic pluralistic system. But if you have a public voice, if you're a politician, even many of the leading Yabloka uh, politicians, um, if you were in, in any way to go off script, you couldn't serve that public role. So you're looking at an entire sort of Potemkin village, an entire facade of a uh, sort of hybrid democratic system. Whereas in actual fact, behind the scenes, Almost everybody in public life is is either made their peace with the regime, or in some way is bought, uh, or um, you know uh, doesn't have the capacity to act independently.
1: Yeah, I, I mean that's true. I mean, I mean that those sort of pluralistic elements are entirely fake, um, and um, it, it, I mean it, 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 it was a sort of postmodern. Uh, uh, sort of authoritarian system now, now, as I said, I was uh, arguing it's kind of totalitarian. And and the the great tragedy is that most Russians support the war. I mean, I think there's a sort of passionate minority who uh, are are in favor of it. There was an equally kind of um, strong minority who who oppose it. Um, Many of those people have left. I mean, particularly sort of younger people, particularly people from Moscow and St. Petersburg, a lot of them have fled. I mean, the, the educated, creative classes have 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 gone uh but the majority are sort of passively in favor and and i think i mean there are several reasons for that but the main one is the propaganda works uh and we, we were talking earlier about about the savagery that the russian soldiers have meted out on the ukrainian population when they encounter them and to a large degree that that that's because what's what, that's what they have seen on the tv screens they've just been told ukrainians are not people um Ni, ludy is the phrase uh that they're savages, that they're vermin, that they're rats, that they're, they're um, you know, to, to, to use the German term. And, and it's worked, that they, they, they think this. Um, and it, it's, it's astonishing. And, and so the, the, war has come, the war hasn't come from nowhere, it's come from, it's come from somewhere. It's, it's it, you know, it's, Ukraine has been an obsession with Putin for a long time, uh, for a long, long time. Um, and I think it's basically fascistic I mean, I mean, that's the other point. I think what we're looking at is, is 21st century Russian fascism. And, and, um, you, you know, even even as late as January of this year, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, you, you know, perhaps sincerely, perhaps not, was kept on calling Putin flying to Moscow, trying to talk to him as if he was an interlocutor who could be reasoned with, uh, was interested in finding a mutual solution, you know, that, that perhaps if he got the right concessions would back down. I mean, Putin wasn't interested in any of that. I and mean, he just interprets those kind of overtures as a weakness he thinks the west is weak he thinks his representatives are weak he thinks his politicians are ephemeral here today gone tomorrow um and he he wants to exploit this weakness for for his own purposes and and actually the place we are now i i think uh, i mean you, first you know first of all ukraine has to win the war and the west has to continue to supply ukraine with weapons so it can it can liberate more of its territory but i think we're just in a place with containment i mean we, we can't wait for some democratic uprising in in russia which will overthrow the putin regime we just need to be clear-eyed and, and contain russia as as you know the u.s and its allies did in in the years during the cold war i mean it's it's the long telegram as george 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 Kennan. It, it's absolutely is the place that we're at and and it's not that I'm some kind of hawk. It's just we have to acknowledge the kind of Russia we're dealing with now, which is aggressive, violent, revisionist, and that if it's not stopped in Ukraine, we'll keep going.
0: And really, the question I like to sort of uh, end on um, is 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 looping back to to something you said earlier that this is an incredibly historic year, and that's one of the reasons I started the podcast. is just it it just felt that this was a pivotal moment in history. Perhaps one that Russia hasn't seen since, you know, 1917, and absolutely critical, or even 1905. These huge turning points in history, um, and I think the the invasion of Ukraine itself, the fact that the post World War II order has been you know, ripped up to an extent, I think that will prove to be the least impactful uh, event that's happened. Whereas Putin's catastrophic weakening of the Russian economy uh, forcing out hundreds of thousands of the most educated and talented proto-middle class um, and destroying its industrial base uh, and as well as its uh, you know the credibility of its energy and military sectors as well as export industries I think that is going to unwind over a number of years isn't it so I, I'm not going to ask you to make predictions, but what is done is is catastrophically. Weaken further uh, Russia and the concept of Russia as a an imperial territory.
1: Yeah, I mean Russia does look pretty weak. I mean, not not least because the whole Ukraine invasion was um, was a hubristic project. Uh, I mean, as, as I said, they thought they would win quickly and, and pretty effortlessly, and and in fact they're now kind of stuck in this kind of grinding struggle where where it's taken seven seven months to to advance a couple of kilometers around Bakhmut. I mean, they're, they're, they are, you know, they, they get 50 meters every day, but at what cost? With, with perhaps 70,000 Russian soldiers killed, um, Russia deintegrated, decoupled from, from the Western economy, as you say, and just, you know, I don't know if you went to McDonald's when you were in Moscow in the 90s, but 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 the, j- just sort of modern life has, has, has kind of vanished together with more than a 1,000 firms whether they're kind of you know lingerie or accounting services or or um yeah or kind of high street chains or or fast food restaurants i mean they've all gone and and russia's sort of essentially kind of gone backwards and putin uh, obviously you know he's indifferent to this uh to the price that's being paid um and he just has this sort of shimmering historical vision in front of him and he's now 70 years old um but I, i i sort of think um I, I mean, you know, I wouldn't predict that his regime is about to fall. I mean, I don't think there's going to be a palace coup. I, 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 the, 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 I mean, the the, the the kind of power guys, the Siloviki, the, the the generals, that they're still very much in control of the situation. And and that those most likely to rise up and rebel have have either done that and been imprisoned, or they have have left the country. But my my sense is, I mean, I don't know what the ending will be, but I, I you know, I, I think I think this is we are towards the end of Putin. Shakespeare. If this is a Shakespearean play, this is Act Five, Scene One but, or Two. I don't know what the, what the end of the play will will, mm-hmm. will be quite. Um, whose body will be on the stage? But I I, I don't see Putin going on until twenty thirty four. I mean, I think I think we're we're towards the end of the Vladimir Putin era. And um, whether it ends with a bang or a whimper, I, I'm not sure. But I th- I think the curtain is coming down.
0: And it might, you know, the elite deposing Putin or somehow moving him aside that doesn't actually change the fundamentals does it it doesn't change the fact that you have an extreme minority of nationalist sentiment it doesn't change the fact you've got a large portion of the population who are either complicit or indifferent to change and it doesn't change the idea that you've got an incredibly powerful uh, FSB KGB elite behind the scenes Willing to manipulate people's minds and actions to control the wealth of the country. I mean, that is going to be far harder to root out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think um, Jonathan, it, 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 you know, any any successor to Putin will probably be a, a neo-Putin or a mini-Putin. I mean, I mean, or a Putin Mark II, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I, d- I don't see. Unfortunately, I don't see a kind of democratic leader taking over anytime soon. Um, but I do think when Putin goes, there will probably be some kind of pause or tactical realignment. And I suspect the war with Ukraine will either stop or be dulled down. I mean, it's very much Putin's war. Um, and it, you know he's always been a gambler. He's always relied on forced solutions. He's always sought to escalate rather than step back. But I, I think, I think with, 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 the, with this invasion, I think he's overreached. Um, and as I say in my book, and look, here it is, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, U- Ukraine is fighting for its survival, and I think you know. I argue in the last chapter that that, that Ukraine is—I call it a proven state. It's actually proved proved itself as as, as as a as a strong, um, uh, you know, a strong country, a strong nation, a strong people. And I think Ukraine will win this war. Whether that means total deoccupation of all of its territory and Crimea, I'm not sure. But but Ukraine has already shown that it can survive uh and russia by contrast looks
0: weaker than ever it's almost impossible to predict but i think I advise people watching this channel to look out for your reportage because it's incredibly insightful. Uh, We're going to put links to the books in the uh, description of the video as well. But I also advise people to read Mafia State, but also Conclusion, which is an extremely terrifying book, um, along with your latest. And I'm sure as this crisis unfolds, there'll be plenty more to explore and write about. Luke, it's been a, a tremendous pleasure uh, speaking to you. I've seen you at a number of events over the past, and uh, it's a, a great privilege to be able to point questions personally at you.
1: Yeah, th- thanks, John. I enjoyed our, 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 our conversation, and you know, I appreciate your, your your the fact that you understand the backstory and and you know have been engaging with with with, with Russia for, for for a long time. It, it shows. Great conversation. Thanks a lot.